Welcome to Mormon Visual Culture, a podcast presented by the Zion Art Society and hosted by me, Micah Christensen. It's a podcast where we foster discussions about art through conversations with prominent artists, collectors, scholars, and curators. For longtime listeners, this is the first interview of 2018. We spent 2017 exploring the legacy of President Spencer W. Kimball's landmark address, The Gospel Vision of the Arts. This year, we have a long list of people and events we hope to cover, and we have have already started talking about events with people who are at the center of one coming up, the church's 11th international art competition. Laura Allred-Hurtado has worked at the Church History Museum for five years. This is the second international art competition during her tenure. She is the Global Acquisitions Art Curator for the LDS Church History Museum. She has published broadly, including two books, Immediate Present and Saints at Devil's Gate, released in 2017 and 2016, respectively. She has worked and or curated exhibitions in New York City, San Francisco, and throughout Utah at such places as the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, Nax Contemporary, the Granary Arts Center, the Utah Museum of Fine Arts, Quack Contemporary, Riverside Church, the Rio Gallery, Columbia University, and the Utah Museum of Contemporary Art. Today, we uh, were able to sit down with Lara in her... Uh, her home turf at the Church History Museum in the library, where we talked about her collecting philosophy, how the competition that uh, is coming up is organized, and uh, we had a we had a great time. She's a little sick, um, and so her voice was a little weak, uh, but we're grateful she sat down with us anyway. And without further ado, here's our interview with Laura. Thank you for having us here, Laura Tato. It's very. It's a privilege to be here, and we're recording in our not usual place. It's not the most efficient way grammatically to say that sentence. We're here at the Church History Museum, and is this your library? This is our library is, and our conference room. So this is where all the big decisions are made. This is where they're laid out. Yes. Exhibitions are planned. Yeah. Things are curated. This room. Yes. Ground zero. Or <laughs> like I'm, I'm in the middle of the nerve center. Yes. Well, we came. It's appropriate that we're here because um, we reached out to you for um, the beginning of our new series for this year of of uh, of uh, uh, podcasts, and we wanted to start off by talking about the Church International Competition, which you've just started promoting online and soliciting submissions for. So is it right if we start off with that? Sure. So um, uh, we are here today to talk about the 11th International Art Competition. And the um, submission dates just opened. It's February 1st through June 1st of 2018. You can submit online. Um, and um, we encourage you to do so. It's, uh, the theme is Meditations on Belief. And um, the associated scripture is, I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember thy wonders of old. I will meditate also of all thy works and talk of all thy doings. And that's from Psalm 77. Okay, so let's start by talking about the theme. I also want to get to the real logistics of how one of these international shows takes place. Because mm -hmm. I, I know that it, that in and of itself, what goes on behind the scenes is a remarkable story, and I think it's not something that everyone knows um, how, th how that happens. But let's start with the theme. So the short version of the theme again is? Meditations on Belief. So how did you select that as the theme, and who's involved in that decision? Yeah, that's a great question. So we have essentially an exhibition team, and that's um, uh, that has a lot of people on it. So one is Carrie Snow. She's our registrar. And she's actually team leading this exhibition, which means she is um, sort of project managing it is a, is a good way to describe it. And she is a good one for that because she's served on, she's worked at the museum for maybe 10, 12 years. So she's, this isn't her first rodeo. She's done about, hmm. you know, four or five uh, international art competitions and has a lot of experience under her belt. And she also is the one that manages all the shipping components, which is again, uh, probably among the most complicated 
part of the exhibition. Mm -hmm. So Carrie Snow is on that team, um, and then a woman named Stacy Lusk. She is the educator, and she also helps manage the online tool. So how you submit to the competition and how that sort of online interface works, she manages that. Um, there's another person on it, um, which is Andrew or <laughs> Andrew Alan Johnson. Alan Johnson is our museum director, and um, he he serves on the exhibition team as well. And then uh, the last person on that team, including well, I'm on that team as well. And then Marianne Andrus. Marianne Andrus is our um, director of public of exhibitions. Mm-hmm. And um, or manager of exhibitions, I believe is her official title, and she has strong public programs um, experience and education experience. So outreach and um, and audience development are all kind of her area of expertise. So that is our team. So when you got together to plan for this exhibition, did you just start whiteboarding ideas and brainstorming? This is. This is, uh, th- here's what I would like to have be the theme, or I'd like this to be the theme. The last theme, I think, was was about Christ. And tell me the stories of Jesus. Tell me the stories of Jesus. Yeah. And did you think, okay, we've explored that. Let's, let's do something that isn't quite as specific about that theme. We want to generate a different kind of work. Yeah, absolutely. Walk me through that's, it. That's, that's absolutely how the discussion goes. We all came with a list of ideas. Um, and um, theme, possible themes, and then certainly kind of agendas that are are driving those themes. Um, so tell me the stories of Jesus brought. Um, the, the scope of it, it was selected by Rita Wright, actually, when she was the curator here. And um, her hope was to increase New Testament um, representation in our collection. Hmm. Um, and um, so it was limited to the tell me of stories of Jesus. The theme was limited to the New Testament. Um, <clears throat> and um, what we wanted to do with the 11th was actually to look more broadly. We even considered not doing a theme as an option hmm. to just have people submit you know, their own expression of their Mormon belief or their uh, religious faith and... Um, and have it be less dictated by us. Um, but Meditations we, on belief is a pretty, it's pretty, pretty broad. broad thing, the kind of thing that would seem like it's calculated to do that. Yeah, that's right. Um, and that, that was a conscious choice on our part to, um, to allow the artists to, to really tell the stories that they want to tell and express their faith in, in the ways that um, are true to them rather than be... Um, you know, dictate specific what we were looking for. Yeah, it's it's such a fascinating um, idea that Rita wanted to increase the number of New Testament themes within the collection. I guess well, it's fascinating to me. I'm working on an article right now that's um, that talks about the dearth of Book of Mormon representations in contemporary art. It seems like we've gone full throttle into New Testament subject matter for the past, well, ever since President Hinckley was around. And so it's interesting that the church's holdings, and maybe there's a delayed reaction between what the church museum of, of, of the church history museum has versus what's being produced at any one time. Right. So that's a really, I, I know that's, I don't know if you're necessarily have a reaction to that. It's just more of an observation, something that I'm fascinated by that that we, dynamic. Yeah, we talk about the, the purpose of the competition is to, um, it's twofold. One is to show the, the breadth and diversity of, I can actually read it directly, which I think may be more useful. It's to <clears throat> showcase the breadth and diversity of the Latter-day Saint artists, and second, to help develop the Church History Museum art collection through purchase awards. So those two things are really paramount in and are kind of strategic things that are in mind when we are putting together the competition. So this... this So essentially um, for Rita, she was looking to build the collection for New Testament. Right. Um, and you may quarrel with that, essentially. Like oh, yeah. Maybe, I, you know, maybe she should have built in other ways. But we have had competitions that have highlighted the Book of Mormon in the past. Um, so that, that has been a collecting goal or an exhibition yeah. goal before. Yeah, I quarrel. It's interesting. No, it's just it's more of a of an observation. I don't know if necessarily anything's good or bad about it. It's just a just an observation. And it 
This breadth and depth issue is something I'd like to talk more about because um, we, the, our last interview that we did was, was with Richard Oman. And Richard Oman uh, was, I don't know if he was one of the founding curators of the church Museum of History and Art. When was it founded? 83. He was there through the mid-80s up until, I think, the, the early 90s. And he has his Ph.D. from, um, from uh, in, in, in Northwestern um, Indigenous Art and has traveled the world. He's very interested in indigenous art projects. And when we talked with him, his interest um, in indigenous art was exactly the reason he wanted to do a church competition. He felt like, and I don't know if I'm misquoting, Eric is here to fact check me on anything I get wrong, but he felt like um, if you were to do a survey of the kind of art that is created by members of the church around the world, that the vast majority of it would be, for lack of a better term, folk art rather than than art that would be, it, it, the kinds of things that would be woven materials, that would be pottery, that would be indigenous arts that were not typically cons- considered fine art in the in in, in uh, and I'm using quotations because I know F, right? how problematic those terms are. folk are loaded. <laughs> and and he felt like that shift had changed it with the last competition. And one of the things that I I felt like was was kind of necessary as part of this discussion was to give you a chance to 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 talk to that, to talk about is that true? Has it did the focus change or is it just a nature of what was submitted or or has the change focus if i had to s- summarize better has in the last this the last competition was your last comp was your first competition right that's right when you took it over was there a conscious decision to change the kinds of things that were accepted and displayed in regards to indigenous arts yeah, that's a good that's a good question. Um, Richard certainly did have a focus on folk art and um, you know indigenous art. What we did in the last competition was that we shifted who the decision makers were. So previously it was Richard, Robert, and then one juror. Who's who's Robert? Robert Davis was a Robert former Davis. former okay. curator. So um, so Richard was a juror. R- Robert was a juror, and then they brought someone in. So essentially, two thirds of the decision were ma- they were made by curators. And both of them were very interested in indigenous art. Both of them had their, you know, collecting agendas. Yeah. 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 And um, what we did with the 10th and what we're doing with this one um, was that we shifted to have the onus of the decision of what art gets in the collection be solely the juror's decision. So there um, had been some problems with um, previous jurors feeling like they didn't have a voice, having sometimes negative experiences. leaving the jury experience crying I'm really feeling um like it was in sometimes antagonistic that wasn't always the case I don't want to I wasn't there so I don't want to speak um you know you know attack Robert or Richard for that decision but this is also the the nature of these competitions and judging you and I have both judged enough events to know that it's subjective there's a lot of opinions there's a lot of there's, there can be conflict back and forth, right. and so regardless of what institution you're at, that can be the, the case, right? That's right, yeah. that's right. But, but, but that is definitely part of that ex- the experience of the past competitions. Yeah, and, and, and it, it's a little tricky when you're um, being asked to jury, um, but then you're also you know with the curators themselves. Yeah. That, that becomes a little tricky because essentially like someone has a trump card, right? Right. <laughs> Sorry for touching it's all right it's all right we won't really affect it um so what we did with the the 10th international art competition was that we we increased the jury size so it was um, five jurors and we let them make the decision so i was the jury foreman but i did not weigh in on any of the choices of the art selected Hmm. um so i did weigh in on the jury um but i did not weigh in on the art selected for the competition i could purchase from whoever applied so we had a thousand submissions and i could purchase from that amount of a thousand Mm -hmm. um and as well as the show so the purchasing wasn't driven by the 
the jury, but the show essentially was a true juried show. It wasn't being informed by, essentially we gave, um, we gave full ownership to the jury. To, Did it go the way that, that you expected? Um, in some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. You know, I can think of one piece that I thought, oh, I really didn't want that in, and um, there were a couple pieces that I really wanted in, but by and far, I think you, if you're going to ask educated jurors to come in and make choices, then you need to trust them to make those choices. So how are you, are, are you going to use the same process this time around, five jurors? We are, same process, five jurors, um, but to your point about, um, you know, increasing folk or indigenous submissions, one of the jurors that we have on um, the panel this time is Elaine Thatcher, and she has an emphasis in, um, she's a folklorist and an art administrator and a cultural heritage specialist, so her emphasis in her study has to do with folk life and folk art, so she, you know, we certainly do have someone yeah. on the jury that could address those types of objects. Well, when I brought up Richard Oman's perspective, I didn't even know necessarily if it was true. It's something that I've, you know, I, I, I've I've lived in Salt Lake a good part of my life, and I think I've seen most shows from from the '90s. I think it started in '89, maybe, 88. and '88. Mm -hmm. I think I've seen almost all of them, and but. I'd be hard pressed to do some kind of quantitative analysis of how much of it was one kind of art versus another, especially when definitions of what's folk or capital F fine art is, right? Right. And so I, I guess I never really asked this question, but do you feel like that was the consequence that there was less indigenous art and there was more fine art with the capital F? Do you think that was a that was a? And I'm not saying that's good or bad, right? Because Richard. Richard, I think, would say, but that's because that's who what his interest that's was, his and, and yeah. organizations and events change over time, right. right? That's just the nature of 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 changing. Right. Do you feel like it changed that that international exhibition was different than previous ones, and if so, how? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I do think it changed in some ways. Um, first of all, we had a hundred pieces, and the show before had two hundred and fifty, hmm. so the pool is just. Was just smaller. Why? Why smaller? The jurors selected less art. Huh. That that's part of it. Interesting. Um, uh, so th I I think that that's it. Certainly shifted in terms of numbers for that show. Um, the other thing that I think shifted was that there was more contemporary art included, um, and I think that does have to do with. Um, the type of artists that chose to submit to that show and the type of jurors that were making decisions on, you know, on who gets in and who gets out. How much of that has to do with who you are? Because you have an interest in contemporary art. How much of it is um, Lars of the Museum now? Right. And um, it's now on our radar in a way that it necessarily wasn't wasn't necessarily before. Right. I don't know if you could actually answer that question. It's kind of a cause and effect that maybe you don't know the behind the scenes of, but but do you, do you, do you sus suspect that's part of why there was more contemporary art? Um, I think it's a little tricky to say, but I do think that, you know, I have a roster of artists that I reached out to that maybe Robert and Richard hadn't before. Yeah. Um, and some of the jurors like Campbell Gray or Glenn Nelson certainly have rosters of artists that they're following that Robert and Richard necessarily may, may not necessarily have been following. Yeah. Um, so I think, I think there is this issue of, of sort of broadening or, or reaching out to artists and then, you know, seeing who gets in. But, I, you know, I don't think you could point to the jury and say that they were all, you know, that we had stacked the deck. Yeah. Um, you know, Rita Wright and um, Suchi, I forgot her last name, Suchi Murray and Laura Durham all have you know, really diverse backgrounds in terms of what their area of expertise um, is and, and what their field of study is. Suchi herself is an artist and ran mm. a studio and um, is quite figurative. Um, she started the first, is one of, she's a pioneer in a lot of ways. She um, started one of the first Chinese branches in California hmm. um, and, you know, has quite a, a different background and really different perspectives. So it was interesting to see you know, the kinds of things that she was responding to and compared to the kinds of things, um, you know, maybe 
Rita responded to or or Laura responded to. I mean, every juror brought their own yeah. perspective, and and I I will say that that the process ended up being quite respectful. That people were hmm. really generous with their opinions and also generous with with other people's opinions. So it went well. It's got to be just the most um, difficult. Yeah, I I've been on juries. And I've been to art competitions, and it's always heartbreaking when you get um, people who've submitted works and they weren't rejected, and they were rejected, and they want to know why. And I imagine that being part of the official church museum and competition, when you have the added element of faith involved, and people feeling like almost like people who who pay tithing and they want their children to go to BYU because right. they, they pay tithing. I'm not trying to be flippant by saying that. Mm-hmm. But but there is that element of there's a certain expectation and rejection for some people, I imagine, can be really difficult. Before we speak to that and how you kind of handle that process when people do approach you or what reasons are for rejection, if any, What's the, what are the numbers? How many works are submitted in general? A yeah, hundred are were selected by the jury last time. How many works were submitted? A thousand. A thousand. So the numbers are not great. I mean, ten percent get in. Yeah, like they're not. They're not in your favor, really. And I don't want to say that and discourage submissions. No. Um, um, but uh, yeah, I mean. They're, they are, it's hard, it's a hard show to get into. Um, one of the things we tried to do last year was to um, standardize subjectivity. Um, so we had a... What do you mean by standardized subjectivity? <laughs> That's such an interesting phrase. Well, what I mean is juring is by nature subjective. Yeah. But if you have a rubric that you're working on and you have certain standards that you're evaluating, then you can standardize some of that subjectivity. Does that make sense? Yeah, so give me an example. Yeah, so the rubric is um, three things. You're reading off of a document I'm right now. So you, this is something that's available to people. It is in online. If you type in, you know, in your Google search, competition details, LDS, art competition, 11th International, Yeah. this document will come up and it talks how to participate in the uh, competition, what the jury process is, and then also the jurying criteria. So the jury criteria is based on three um, three categories. One is artistic merit. The artwork has excellent aesthetic and tec- technical accomplishments in the chosen medium. The formal artistic elements are of the highest quality. The material and method work to effectively articulate the overall message. Okay. Two, innovation. The artwork has creativity and originality in concept, medium, and cultural context. The artwork explores a unique sense of culture, position, and innovative thinking. The individual expression is original, exceptional, and relevant. And overall, the work has a a sense of surpassing other works in its ingenuity and style. And then third, thematic alignment. The artwork successfully expresses Latter-day Saint subject matter, aligns with the competition themes, and pairs with strong artistic statements. The point of view is unique and expansive, and the artwork deepens the viewer's understanding of the theme. So we review these um, three themes with the jurors beforehand, and we talk about them, and then each one is given an even, like, 33.3%, essentially. Waiting, and then they they give the work a number. So the first round is done online, um, and the juror uh, reviews the artwork, and then reviews the artist statement, and reviews the artist biography, and um, you know details about the work, medium, um, scale. That's sort of hard to tell from yeah. the, from the image. And then essentially they have these three grades that they're giving the work and hmm. ultimately when we choose what works go into the second round it's based on just a numeric number so so no one can say in that process hold on a second this work that i just think is absolutely standing didn't make it through the statistical analysis i think we should all revisit it or does that happen yeah so um it rarely happens so one of the things that we did was if if a work had sort of an extreme anomalies, like three jurors gave it 100 and two jurors gave it zero, yeah. then we would revisit it. But okay. those were maybe five works out of a thousand. Yeah. Those were those were sort of, like I said, statistical anomalies. Um, 
and and essentially what we did was we would um, include those in the second round of juring. But so you, you said that there were a thousand pieces that were submitted last time, and we you you talked about this process of submitting things online. I think that some people maybe aren't aware that they're seen digitally because logistically, how many countries did those come from, those thousand pieces? Yeah, I mean, just I dozens, right? speak to that number. It may have been 40. It's yeah. quite a lot. I mean, just logistically, there's, there's, there's no really practical way of bringing all of the works physically to one place. Not a thousand. It's, it's a little tricky. I mean, like Springville, you bring your work to be jurored, but largely they're pulling from a local... right. From local, right, and even then, even um, Quack, who did Utah Ties, they they were pulling from people yeah. that were close. And, and it seems like that's more and more the standard. Actually. It seems like you know places like the Whitney, like the Art Renewal Center competition, more and more things like the British Portrait Award. Even there is this this I think everybody acknowledges problem with works look different in person than they do online. Right, but there's also the problem of. If you have to physically bring something, then you're going to cut out a huge group of people who can't either afford to to send it or you as a have to take on the burden as someone organizing it to bring out thousands of objects that then may have to be sent back after they've gone through the process. Right. And so we try and do it two ways. So our second our first round is done online, um, but then the second round we bring, you know, two hundred and fifty works and then send them back. Oh, that's interesting. So um, you so, so you it, it do bring to, it for the for the second stage. We do. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, we do. Do you find that um, was that the was this last competition the first time that it happened? No, I think that's been standard. Has it? Mm-hmm. Um, how does that second round differ from the first in your with in your experience last time with people actually physically having the objects with them? Um, in some ways, I think there's, um, in some cases, it reaffirms, you know, this is a piece that looks strong online and it looks, it looks good here. I think, I think if a piece is strong and really strong, it will look good both places. Hmm. Um, but it, sometimes it depends on the medium or, you know, like sculptures are a little tricky online, you know, because there's, there's things that you experience, um, physically that you can't that they become flat and 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 have some problems but you know there's quite a few works that I think just reaffirm like yeah this was on my list this all these works that got high ratings online are are seeming to get high ratings in person that I, I would say in general is the case but there's few pieces that you know really stand out or or really surprise you or their texture is different or their materiality looks different um, that I think um, you really benefit from seeing in person. Yeah. Um, the other thing that we did on the 10th competition is that previous competitions had quotas for countries. So if you had one submission from Mongolia, and whether you liked it or not, it was the one work from Mongolia, it got in the show. Hmm. And um, we had a, quite a lot of discussions about whether we should do quotas or not. We talked to Glo- the, the global um, division that's part of the Church History Museum, asked their advice. We talked to um, different regions and asked their advice. And we ultimately decided to do away with the quota system. Um, and so that may be partly why you see the competition looking different from previous competitions, yeah. um, because that quota system shifted. Um, what we did try to do this time um, to increase submissions from um, around the world to truly make it an international art competition um, was to advertise very early in Liahona's to give out bishops flyers that were printed. And Liahona's are the church publications that are in native countries. So That's there's right. a so so each country in their in their individual magazines had advertisements. That's okay. right, and we've tried to work with Global to um, to talk to uh, area advisors to encourage them to submit to that competition. In the last competition, we had two works that got in from Cambodia, and that may seem kind of surprising because 
you know, how did they hear about it? What did they know? And there was essentially a missionary couple that, that knew about the competition that encouraged these two me- members to apply. And their works were outstanding and super interesting. I remember one in particular, there was a Christ that had children that was surrounding him and he looked somewhat Cambodian. Yeah. yeah. I remember that. It was a really interesting yeah. piece. Yeah. Um, and so those works got in the competition essentially because the artists were guided by a missionary couple that helped them Somebody apply. Somebody was really proactive and yeah, reached was really out to them. Yeah, proactive. In fact, one it of them... That. Yeah, one of them delivered the artwork to us. Like, the missionary couple, when they were leaving, delivered the artwork to us. Um, and it takes that. Um, the other thing we've tried to do to rectify or to really reach international is to offer some uh, selected scholarships. Hmm. So, right now, you can go, if you live outside of, of the U.S., you know, I'm not sure what the official terms are, but if you live within 150 miles, then you're responsible for delivering your work. Um, but if you live outside of the U.S., you're, then you can go to a distribution center. But a distribution center may be eight hours away from you or yeah. maybe 12 or 20. I mean, it could be quite far. And so um, we've offered some select scholarships for those that have financial need to maybe get their work to a distribution center or to ship their work here um, to increase international submissions. So we've got a lot of international listeners to this podcast um, that we found out over the past year. If they want to apply for that, that grant or scholarship or whatever it is, is that that's all available on the website and we'll repeat it again at the end. We'll have links on our, on our website, zionartsociety.org, but it's, it's all on the website, right? Yeah, it's all on the website and essentially, um, there's paperwork that will come to you if you get into the second round and that's when you, that's That's when when we need to figure out shipping. Okay. Yeah. Um, because you know, from the thousand only, 200 and, or maybe it was 300 that came in so only a small portion needs yeah. to worry about still a third shipping it's pretty it's so so yeah. i want to switch i want to um change the conversation a little bit to the church history museum in general yeah. um it's it seems like the church history museum has gone undergone some really fascinating changes over the past decade um, like we said earlier, founded in the uh, early 80s. And then it was called the Church Museum of History and Art. Right. And over the past few years, there's been a multi-million dollar renovation. And the first floor has um, had a, a number of historical dioramas with art incorporated into them that uh, have been put up with historical objects. And, and, uh, and it seems like it seems like, and correct me if I'm wrong, that a, a lot of the space that was previously dedicated to art has become um, art plus historical objects and narrative of the church's history and, and key individuals. And that means, you know, for better or worse, that uh, there's less art space available. And the museum's name has changed from the Church Museum of History and Art to the Church Museum of Hi- the Church History Museum. Yeah. Can I'm you glad. tell us a little bit about what... I mean, first of all, is that accurate? Uh, um, I'm happy you asked that question, and yeah. I'm happy to tackle that question. So um, let me talk first about the name change, and then the other thing yeah. we talk about is sort of museum real estate and how it's being spent. Okay. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> Fascinating. This is exactly what I want to get to. Yeah. So the, the church history name change happened when Steve Olson was the managing director. Um, Steve Olson currently works for Historic Sites is a museum guy, you know, spent a lot of his career here at the museum. Um, Steve, if you talk to him and you ask him specifically why he changed the name, he, he will talk about, he has a PhD in anthropology, and he'll talk about how he essentially thought of history anthropologically, hmm. that under the umbrella of history is art, is culture, is um, meaning making, is history, but but that the name wasn't intended to be this philosophical shift of like we're abandoning art which is essentially what we've been accused of have you i this oh, is the, course, I've, I've never yeah. had a conversation oh, with yeah. somebody outside of just mm-hmm. yeah. eric and i about that question of course that when the name change happened essentially that the um you know the, as, there were some public affairs issues essentially that hmm. the, the the perception from the art community was that we had abandoned art um, but really, the the thinking behind the name change had nothing to do with an idea of abandoning art programs, but more 
of a branding issue. We are the church history department. There's the church history library. There's a church history museum. I think he just wanted it cleaner yeah. and was thinking, again, anthropologically, like like a broad umbrella that under the umbrella of history is art. Um, <clears throat> since I've been here the last five years, um, we did do that major renovation. But if you look back to what was there before, the exhibition before was Covenant Restored. It had been there 30 years. 30 years. 30 years. Without any changes, without significant any changes. significant changes. And it needed some major updating and it was a history exhibition so that real estate that took up a history exhibition is still a history exhibition hmm. um it and like i said you know 30 years is a really long time for an for any exhibition um but they were right to to renovate and to really put money into that story we've always been a combined museum of history and art we have these two missions um, and in fact, in some ways, we have we have an umbrella mission, which is that we're a part of the church. That church is a big part of the story that we tell. Um, you know, we have, if you look at our mission statement, which I don't have memorized, but it's, you know, it's about guiding people to Christ. I mean, yeah. that, that that's different than a mission of other art museums. Well, it kind of, and, and to me, that's... Um it's not so much a criticism as it is an observation ab- about the museum because it seems like, um, you know, over the weekend I was I was reading an interview with Barbara Jada and she is the new director of the Vatican Museums and she for 20 years had been working in the paper and prints department and uh, someday we gotta we gotta um, we gotta have this as a separate conversation but it's the idea that on some level there is this. The Vatican has all of these artistic treasures, but art ultimately is subsumed into the larger mission of the church's mission to preach the gospel or to perfect the saints or to um, redeem the dead, even for the Catholic Church, right? And and so the Vatican um, has this, this, this difficult balance that I assume is somewhat part of what, what you have to do. I don't know if it's true, but I assume that that uh, a huge number of the people who come through the doors of the museum have just come off of buses from some convention or some tour bus, and they're looking for context. Right. They're not necess- and and uh, and that context is not ex- all available at Temple Square entirely. This has a completely this this offers things historically and te- contextually. The Temple Square doesn't have the space or or real estate to do. So balancing that um, is, is I imagine, something you have to do that other museums don't. Yeah, I think it's a delicate balance. And I think, you know, looking at the Vatican Museum or the Jewish Museum um, in New York City or elsewhere, that there is, there is a two-pronged or a three-pronged mission that, um, that other museums don't have. Um, and and I would say it's 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 not a problem, but as much as much as it is just a delicate balance of how to tell your story. And um, you know, we're not a visitor center. That's a very different mission than a, a visitor center has. A, you know, has their own mission. Um, but we are telling the history of the church. Um, we are telling the history of it, it, in the exhibition downstairs. The heavens are open. We're telling the history of the founding of the church. Um, and in in our exhibitions upstairs with Joseph Paul Vorst, we're telling the history of a single member and of his his experience. Um, so I I think I think we are you know it is a kind of a, a delicate balance. Hmm. You've included a lot of original art that I think you commissioned yourself in the exhibition that's downstairs that tells the history of the church. Works by. Um, Bill Whitaker, William Whitaker, Gary Ernest Smith, Casey Childs. I know I'm only naming a few, but um, Doug Fryer. That, Doug Fryer. Yeah. Yeah. Phil. Carrie, Carrie Smith. Carrie Smith. So when you when you do these these works and art is, I don't know how to phrase this without it sounding like I'm being biased, but I'm not. It's just it's the idea that obviously I'm not trying to be, 
that it's instead of art being seen as art, it's being seen as part of a diorama, right? right? And I wonder, do the do the artists? And these are these are all members of the church. These are all people who know that their art is being used for that purpose. Was that part of the discussion of this is going to be part of a permanent or semi-permanent diorama, and there won't be a museum label that talks about your biography as an artist, but it's going to talk about, you know, almost exclude your name may not even appear on the painting. Right. Um, I would say that all the artists um, knew that <clears throat> exhibition that they were in. And they all have labels with their names on them yeah, yeah. Um, that, you know, credit them for their work. Um, but how art functions in a history exhibition is different than how it functions in an art exhibition. Yeah. Um, that being said, you know, I think the, the final mural of Doug with the, the Nauvoo temple at the very end, or, or even Casey's painting of the, the diptych of, of um, the martyrdom, I think I would quarrel with you that they are didactic or just purely instructional. I think I think Casey's painting is really powerful. Oh, pow- these are powerful works. I mean, yeah. totally memorable. And they do exactly what art is is capable of doing that, that other things aren't. They, right. they bring... A, a sense of immediacy and depth and and heightened reality in a way that I mean, there there's the quality of the works that are through that 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 exhi- that the, the, the diorama is the wrong word I hate exhibition correct, exhibition is is um is very high and they're exceptional works I don't think and and so it's not a it's more like a question of, and I know this is totally unfair question of, why aren't there credits at the end of the Temple movie kind of thing? You know, like, right. well, why would there be, right? It's kind of a ridiculous question because you're not there to, like, know down who the actor and the special effects and the, who did the grip and those kinds of things. And that's not necessarily the purpose. But I do think it, it does have, I think that with, when you're in a church, and you are a church history museum. These are considerations that other museum professionals don't necessarily have. And so I, I guess what I'm teasing out is just your your thought process behind it because you have a job that most people, with questions in a museum world, that most people don't have to answer. And you've done a right. great job. I don't mean to be adversarial in any way with this. Yeah, but I, I mean, I think that, you know, different from the Temple movie, there are tombstone labels that point out this is Walter Rain or... Um, or Bill Whitaker or Doug Fryer that that credit the artists for the work that they did. Casey Childs. Yeah, yeah, they are um, all credit. I was just down there yeah, paying attention to that. Um, yeah, so they, they are credited. So even though they're, and it seems like you, you have had this criticism occasionally that the real estate isn't as much art as it is history, there is across the street at the conference center a huge amount of art that is on display. And I've noticed as I've gone there regularly over the past few years that it's a place that's being actively curated by you. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. And and to go back to that question of real estate, I don't think that the way that the museum is divided is different than how it was no. a decade ago. That, that main floor exhibition has always been a history exhibition. The presence of the church that's upstairs is our second history exhibition. And it's also been up for 30 years. So there are not really um you know gallery spaces that are being taken up by history exhibitions where you know previously art has been i you know right now the west gallery does have a history exhibition and previously there was an art one but um you know we have an art exhibition going in right after it so i, I yeah. think maybe it's just maybe it's just I, anecdotally my own i think it's anecdotal my feeling of yeah. i remember coming here and being able to see um, any number of Edwin Evans, J.B. Fairbanks, J.T. Harwood, C.C.A. Christensen's, Dan Court Wagland, in the right. dozens, they, right. they seem to be up at any one time. And now maybe it's not that the space is, is any less dedicated to art, but maybe it's more focused on something like a particular exhibition, like right. the Vorst show. Right. Right. And Which so maybe doing it, some would you say that's accurate? Yeah, I would say that's accurate. And and you know previously they did have for a while. You know, masters of the collection in the central gallery, mm-hmm. um, but rather than than um, showing just our collection, we are trying to do some original scholarship to collect new works and to you know for the Vorst exhibition is a good example. There's a publication that came with that, um, and 
it's it's doing some some original work so it may not be the heavy hitters that you're familiar with but it is introducing a new person to the canon and i think that's um you know a smart and a strategic strategy to to do um the show before that was saints at devil's gate we also published a book with that one mm-hmm. um and you know we're telling a particular story with those exhibitions so this, um, so maybe we need to do a Paris Art Missionary one if you want um, to see your list. Or pioneer, pioneer well, artists if you want to see your list. Well, I don't know because it does seem like... Um, yeah, I don't know if that's necessarily what I'm suggesting. It's, it's uh, you know, one of the things that Richard Oman said um, in our conversation, and, and it's only because it's the most recent conversation, is he talked about the, the incredible um, treasury of, of oceanic art that is in in the church. Some works that have been borrowed by the Smithsonian over the past couple of decades, for example, um, things that were like Maori headdresses or works that were given as diplomatic gifts to church leaders. And when I just think about, every museum has this problem. There's there's something like a ratio of five percent of works that are on view right. of, tops. Of, of of tops of things yeah. that are that are available, and so you're never going to be able to have. Right all of those things on at any one point or be able to do justice to everything. I did, I, I am fascinated though by this question of of uh, how the conference center works into it. And before I, 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 you, before I, I ask you about what you've been doing there, I just want to um, share my own experience when, when I went there recently and had conversation with Linda Curley Christensen. It seems like Linda Curley Christensen, landscape artist, who, when the conference center was first built, was commissioned to do a number of landscapes for the interior of it. And um, if you go there now, when you walk in, there are people who are called as missionaries. They're hosts. They're hosts. Okay. Got to use the correct terminology. Yes. They're hosts. Or hostesses. And, and uh, they are, they work like a like a like a, uh, a like clockwork. They are very well organized. They've been practicing their their uh, their, their tours, right. and you can't go through it just on your own. You can't just walk in and walk around. They take you on that tour, right. and um, I've taken several people on tours there in uh, on my own and organized things like that. And every time I go, it seems like there's there's um, a lot of Linda Curleys are still up there. Um, along with some of the other things that have been there for a long time, like the Hall of Leaders. But there's some exciting works that are going up. How are you using that space and expanding the museum's collections into that space? What kinds of decisions and how do you see that space, I guess, is the question. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, You know, one of the, the... Recent shifts in the conference center are two new acquisitions that we've um, included on display there. One is a painting by Elspeth Young of um, Jane Manning James, mm-hmm. and it's really beautiful. And Elspeth is an artist who has gotten a lot of attention for a painting that she's done for the temple that no one can get rights to because the way that the temple manages um, their collection, they want to keep it sacred they want to keep it within temple walls um <clears throat> so for those who those who don't know this process that if a te- if a work is displayed in the temple usually there's this moratorium on it being available for sale That's elsewhere right. and there there's a lot of sense behind that it's the idea that you don't want to profit and right. some you don't want to give the sense of somebody profiting from temple association That's right yeah right um, but um, the painting that she did of Jane Manning James uh, uses the same model as the one that um, a lot of people have given her accolades for. So it's um, not the same painting. It's not the same painting. Interesting. It's the same model. So did you go? Did, did, is it something you commissioned? No, no. Separately? It was a painting that she had. Um, hmm. That um, I, I'm interested in including, um, you know, stories of women and um, Jane Manning James' story is in particular very interesting. Um, and Elspeth does a lot of interesting research for her works. Um, so it was a work that I acquired from her, and I felt like it was a story worthy of telling by including it in the conference center. So it's it's up. Yeah. And there's another one. You said there were two. There were two. Um, the other one is a painting called She Will Find What Is Lost, which has gotten a lot of attention there at the conference center. 
I routinely, like every conference, get someone's selfie sent to me in front of the painting. Is this the Brian Krasiznik work that, uh, yes. or yeah, that that's the the enormous ten, twelve feet tall? It's quite tall. I um, know. And, it, yeah. and it has a number of, and we. We did an interview with Chris Baird, um, okay. who who Wait. is it on loan from Chris Baird? No, we bought it. You bought it, okay. Yeah. So it was it was one time in his collection. That's he was right. very proud of it, and That's he right. and has very personal story tied yeah, to it. Yeah, yeah, and and yeah. It, it seems to be, um, and, and it's so heartening to see art take on that almost selfie culture, right, right? right? It's really it's really wonderful that people feel so personal about it. Right. One and, and I and I wonder if. Yeah, I come to the Church History Museum, and I can walk around freely, and I can look at things as I want. And the conference center, it seems, ever since the terrorist attacks of 2011, has been some kind of, like, lockdown on some level where everything has to be... Guided. Guided. Mm -hmm. Do you ever see a day where that is its own exhibition space, where just like this museum... I mean, are there conversations... Maybe I'm I'm getting behind the scenes into bureaucratic discussions I shouldn't be involved in. But it seems like that is an exciting possibility. And maybe we can just leave it at that. Do you have anything to add? You can just leave it at that. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I understand. I get it. But it would be... It it just seems like it could be such an exciting space to to show things in. So you heartily have my vote. If you need anybody to secretly write letters, feel free to contact me. You know, one of the things we did at the conference center as well is that um, something I had noticed, but also, um, you know, Bill Whitaker, when he wants something done, will, you know, go on a mission for it. So we um, walked through the conference center so many times together, and he was just very, you know, bothered by the lighting, the way that the artwork was lit. Hmm. Um, And it was something I had noticed and something that other people had made comments on. So one of the things we've done in the last three years, we're now on stage three, um, we have spent... um, we have invested in new lighting for the art. So it is all hmm. properly art lit, um, you know. So there are ways that this space is being influenced in order to be a better showcase for it. That's great. Yeah. Okay, so one of the questions I have then about <laughs> if you're acquiring things on a regular basis from shows, and it sounds like if I'm interpreting what you've said correctly, there is the, the jury. It's got things that it selects for the show, but you don't necessarily have to go with the jury says. So you can have things that maybe wins the top prize, but you don't acquire. You acquire something else from the show, and you've gone to Elspeth Young and you've acquired things from her. Right. Um, do you have an acquisitions plan for the museum? And what? So, and for people who aren't aware of that that concept. For instance, um, under Vern Swanson at the Springville Museum of Art, there really was this mission to acquire all Utah artists in their major periods, and not necessarily every five years, going all the way back to the mid-19th century. But if a great example came up of something that was missing and it was, or it was better than one that was in the collection, Sometimes there would even be deaccessions of the one that was lower quality in order to get the one that was higher quality. We were very aggressive about it at his time. Not all museums are like that. But I assume you have some kind of plan in your head for why you acquire what you acquire. Yeah, I do. And it's not just in my head. It's also on the wall. It is? Written on the wall. If you go to the lower level gallery, the lower level gallery highlights recent acquisitions. Mm -hmm. And the label highlights what our collection policy is for art. So can you tell us? Yeah, I can. And you can read it yourself. <laughs> I will. You can Go visit, down, you can read you can it. Visit it. Uh, it's threefold. Um, one is um, something I call Mormon Salon. It's a made-up term, but it's essentially all those artists that you would perceive the church to acquire, um, like Minerva Tykert would fall in there, um, Harry Anderson. I did a big Harry Anderson acquisition of all his preparatory studies. It was incredible. Yeah, it was an incredible show. Thank you. Um, uh, you know, Paris art missionaries, um, but also artists like uh, artists that are painting for the temple today. The, I, they fall under this category, this loosely made up category, but useful. Um, Mormon salon. Mormon salon. Okay. Mormon salon. That's that's category. That's the one. Category one. Category two is uh, global. So um, one of the ways in which our um, collection could benefit from building is to include art by international artists, by um, 
people of color, by people. I'm, Mormonism is a global faith, and our collection is very skewed towards Utah. And you know, it's a it's a it's a misnomer to think all Utah art is short for Mormon art. It's yeah. certainly um, inefficient and inaccurate now. Yeah. Um, so one of the things I've tried to do is to commission a major body of work by an international artist every year. I haven't. Um, I I am in the process of of doing that, and it does require quite a lot of. How do you define a major body of work when you commission? Yeah, so I commissioned uh, um, sixteen paintings by Jorge Coco, San Angelo, on the life of Christ. Um, Argentine who studied in Spain and who lives in in. Uh, lives in Argentina. In Argentina? He, he he didn't study in Spain. He worked in Spain for ten years. Okay. Argentina had a. You know, some revolutions. They had an unstable political climate for a while. Uh, so he immigrated to Spain with his family for 10 years and then immigrated to Mexico and taught in Mexico at the University of the Americas for 10 years mm-hmm. and then moved back to Argentina. He lives, um, you know, just outside of Buenos Aires. And, and he has the style that he he's termed sacro cubism. That's right. Yeah. 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 So you commissioned these works, and I guess one of the questions is. What do you do with those works once you commission them? Are you, you've got a gallery downstairs that you're putting them in, but are you actively gathering them so that you have um, them on display in the conference center, on display here? Are they published? How does this work? Right. So you, I mean, it does go back to this 3% rule, right? That 3% of any collection is on display. Yeah. Um, But one of the things that I've done is to work with the Sunday school manuals. So when the New Testament manual comes out, you should see sacrocubism in the New Testament manual. Um, we acquire reproduction rights when we acquire works, so then they enter in the larger church um, rights, so to speak. There's a, a, an image software management program called Telescope, and so they enter that so that anyone making a manual or an InDesign cover or what have you um, can pull from that image database mm-hmm. uh, that we have rights to. And that's a great way to disseminate, uh, disseminate images that are acquired because um, there's more platforms for it than just the museum. Interesting. Um, and then we also have an exhibition coming up to show that collection. We also acquired a few more pieces um, for that show, and that one opens in May. So in a lot of museums, when they acquire things, it can be a pretty bureaucratic process. So you've, you've got a board, you've got um, a, a volunteer committee that's part of that board usually and breaks down into an acquisitions committee and everything has to go through a long fundraising process. How does it work when you acquire something to the church? Yeah, yeah. so I'm on the UMFA collection board. And, mm-hmm. You know, that that's a common kind of practice. It works very different for the church. Yeah. Um, so under a certain threshold, I can acquire work without talking to anyone. F- financial threshold financial threshold all the determining um, areas are financial thresholds not even not even the director of the museum interesting you shook your head no you don't <laughs> need to talk with the director of the museum well it's a relatively small threshold I yeah. would say but yeah yeah I mean I'm not suggesting that you're 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 in dark alleys buying paintings right. <laughs> and, and you know if the pay, if, if the work of art is excessively huge I wouldn't even if it was free I would need to talk to um, uh, you know, to our registrar, make sure we had space considerations, things well, like that. This this brings in a really um, odd question I hadn't planned on asking before. I hadn't even considered. But when you hold on one second, let me tell you though. Then at another threshold, I go to an acquisition board, and then on another threshold, I go and talk with Elder Snow and something. It's called EDM. So it's all the managing directors or all the director level positions for the Church History Museum and um, Elder Snow and Reed Nielsen. Interesting. So there's, but they're all determined on financial thresholds. Okay, so. I imagine then that you've got a lot of freedom to do to, to within those the, the the lower threshold in particular to kind of do what you want, but you've also got this this idea that many of the things you acquire may be seen in reproduction more than they're actually seen in person in some cases. So let's say that you have something like the Church International Exhibition like you did last time, number ten. 
and their installation pieces that cannot be well reproduced in a in a in a two-dimensional graphic setting of some kind how do how do you kind of thread that impossible needle of something that is a physical object that may be seen non-physically yeah i mean i wouldn't i wouldn't bias our collection towards that secondary function of it being um something that could be reproduced in magazines does that make sense like that's kind of the tail wagging the dog right you know the work that we collect as an institution has to be historically significant and it could be brand new but historically significant um, and and somehow be a part of shaping and forming the Mormon story or the Mormon identity. And, um, you know, that would be why I collect the work first and foremost. Mm. Um, and then that secondary function of it being distributed. So a couple more questions. We're running down on, on time. Um, one is, um, and it goes along with this, it's, how do you account for your personal taste versus your audience and and their tastes? And this is true of anybody who's in a position like yours, right. is that um, you're going to get pushed back no matter who you are and no matter what you choose. So you've been in this position for five years, mm-hmm. and um, I wonder how you've walked that line between what you personally like and... Um, and and what your audience demands or or where you want to lead your audience, right. um, if there is even a difference. Maybe there isn't a difference. I think curators are hired as tastemakers. Um, and, you know, the work you select for your gallery, you are selecting in part because you deem it worthy of, of consideration. Um, you know, but also in your gallery, you have market considerations. It's the same yeah. thing, right? Oh, yeah. It's the same thing. Um, I mean, there seems to be, in some people's minds, a huge difference between a museum and a gallery. But honest, and, and there is in, in a lot of ways. Well, but in some is. fundamental ways, both of you have an audience. You have an audience whose needs you need to consider. Um, yeah. My tastes know. are very different from, 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 a lot of, um, in, from a lot of the commercial galleries why don't I use Vorst as an example so yeah. Vorst was an area in which I was introducing an, odd, an, an artist to an audience that was unfamiliar with him Yeah. Um, and so there wasn't a built in audience the way that a Minerva Tykert show would have um, but it was someone that I felt was um, you know worthy of being introduced you know historically significant and a story um, uh that should be told. So one of the things we did is that we worked with, we had focus groups in developing the exhibition, and we um, worked with a, a, a branch of correlation called RID, Research Information Division, and we met with various people in wards around the Wasatch Front um, of various makeups um, and introduced the artwork and introduced his story and asked them questions and learned what they wanted to learn um, and one of the things that came out of that was the video that we have at the very beginning of the exhibition. So we learned that when people knew Vor's story, that the artwork resonated with them more. Um, and so we, you know, front and center wanted to tell his story. And so that was a, you know, that was a real value that we got from focus groups. Um, right now, if you peek your head in the auditorium, you'll see um, posters of, of Jorge's Sacro Cubist show. And we've surveyed visitors from the museum to get a sense of um, what they get from the show, what their the main thing they get from the show, mm. and um, and and what we thought they would get. You know, one of the subtitles we had for the show was sacro cubism, but mm. no one got it, and no one really understood it. So there's one thing where you're teaching to the lowest common denominator and there's another thing where you're asking your audience to raise and so we're not burying that phrase but we may not put it in our title yeah. um, and and i think it's very important as museums or you know as public history institutions that you understand what your audience um, is learning from your exhibitions and to cultivate your exhibitions around that um, but also you know you are you are 
tastemakers, you are the expertise. Mm. Um, so I say give and take. Well, I'm very grateful mm. for the time you take. And I know that um, those of you who, are, who, who know you well um, know that you're, your, your voice probably sounds a little weak. You've been, you've been sick. Yes. So to have an hour-long conversation with us as you're recovering is very kind of you. And it was, it was all in, in, uh, in, in service of promoting this, this international art competition. So since that is the main purpose for being here, let's just say one more time. The exhibit, the, so, so the submissions are from what date until what date and where do they go? So submissions are online. Uh, if you Google the 11th International Art Competition LDS, it will come up. Um, the submission dates started February 1st and go through June 1st of this year. The first round of juryin is June of 2018, this year, and the second round will be September of 2018. The show will open March 2019 and go through October 2019. Okay, so we have um, our website that we'll be putting a link to this on, mm-hmm. and in uh, we're going to take a lesson from those that, that senior missionary couple and say that if you know an artist that you feel like should be submitting, who isn't in earshot of this podcast or the website, print it out, send it to them, invite them, do all you can. You could make all the difference in the world of us seeing something that we wouldn't otherwise see. And we talked about some, you know, sort of hard statistics in terms of getting into the final show. Yeah. But if you apply, we... You know, I look through every single submission. So I found artists that maybe didn't get in the show whose work I'm interested in or whose work I'm following because I found them through yeah. just applying. So do please apply. I think it's a smart thing to do. Um, you'll get on the radar. You'll, you'll get, get on, on somebody's radar. radar when you do it. Whether or not you make it into the show, it's worth the effort of, of submitting. Yeah, and if I can share who the five jurors are please as well. Please do. Yeah, um, the five and jurors, we'll put their information up too. That's great. So the five jurors are Herman Toy, Jay Kirk Richards, Jean Richardson, Annalisa Coates-Sato, and Elaine Thatcher. Great. Well, thank you, Laura Alredo Hurtado, for being a part of this and for interviewing us in the midst of this flu season. We hope that you feel better. Thanks for having us. Thank you. I would like to thank Laura Alredo Hurtado for joining us for this episode of Mormon Visual Culture presented by the Zion Art Society. For more information on how to participate in the church's 11th international art competition, please visit our website, zionartsociety.org. There you will also find archives with more interviews with artists, collectors, scholars, and curators. I'm Micah Christensen. Thank you for listening.